massive welcome to Bill Armstrong for agreeing to come and share his wisdom with us here on the Humans at Work podcast. I've known Bill for quite a while now, and I am very sure that you're going to be in for a fantastic conversation that goes all sorts of places. So, Bill, if you could kick up, kick off just by introducing yourself and sharing where you're working at the moment, what kind of clients you're working with, so we can have a bit of a background to who you are. Thank you. Thank you so much, Michelle. It's a pleasure. And um, I'm flattered that you suggest that um, I'll share wisdom. I, I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> we'll cross our <laughs> fingers. <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see. We'll roll the dice and see how it goes. Um, I'm currently the people and culture manager for Castle Personnel Services, who um, people would probably know very well um, as being a disability services provider in, in Newcastle, the Hunter and the Central Coast. But we also um, are very active in NDIS services, um, particularly the job ready space, although we do we do have a broad and diverse range of services, but there, there is there is a um, an interface between the job ready work that we do and the and the DES employment that we um, um, that we provide as well. I haven't been there for very long. I've only, only been working with Diane Hammer um, and the team there for the last um, month or so. Um, prior to that, I spent the last couple of years dabbling in the talent acquisition space. Um, which is something which I dearly love. I've got a, a great passion and a bit of a student of recruitment. But before that, um, I must confess, I started work in human resources in 1975. And I think wow. one of the realities... You're a HR person from way back then. I started working in HR when it didn't exist, Michelle. Mm-hmm. Um, they started before it back... was personnel, even. <laughs> exactly. When it was like a a group of things like industrial relations, safety, payroll, recruitments, but, but, but didn't have a name. I think it was called administration back in those days. And I, and I, always, I, always, I was thinking about this the other day. I think for the first whew, at least 10 or 15 years, or the first 10 years of my working life, um, I always had to, it always took me a long time to explain to people what I did because there wasn't a name for it in those days. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? And it's also interesting with the debate that happens in an ongoing way within the industry about not calling people resources and what we should reinvent ourselves as and everything mm. like that. So, yeah, mm. that is interesting. And so what kind of clients are you mainly working with? Is it primarily people with disabilities or...? Well, my role, of course, is to is to support the people who um, work in the community and work with the participants, um, either in an NDIS service sense or or an employment sense. So, I suppose we we we, we very much the, the executive team at Castle very much see our role as as supporting them to support the community and and support the participants as well. But I think generally, when you talk about disability employment, I think one of the things people um, you know, their mind immediately goes to visible um, disabilities. Um, but I would say, uh, I don't know the exact number, but I would imagine about 45% of the people that we work with at Castle to, to find employment and help support their careers or, or help develop their, um, their job readiness um, would have non-visible um, disabilities. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about mental health, anxiety, depression, uh, you know, people um, on uh, various forms of autism on the spectrum. Um, yeah, so I would say it would be it'd probably be 50-50, 50%, mm. 
people who you would um, you would notice have a disability, if if I can put it that way, mm-hmm. and people who um, you cannot see their disability. Um, and, and I think um, in workplaces in general, there's a lot of um, misappropriation of cause of events that goes on, particularly when there's people with some kind of disability and particularly when it's a hidden disability. Hmm. And very often, you know, employees can get in trouble and they can get into these performance management conversations when it's not a performance management issue at all. It's an issue to deal with how how they could um, otherwise have dealt with something because of their ADHD or something like that. So I think yes. it's a really interesting space that HR as the front line of people that are dealing with this are often dealing with people with hidden disabilities that they often don't know about even existing. Mm. It's interesting. I, I, I've always been drawn to, to working in um, disability service environments and, 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 and it's a very personal thing for me because, uh, you know, um, I believe that in one form or another we all have disabilities. I, I agree. I, I, agree. I know I, I know I certainly do. You know, I've um, sort of uh, particularly as a as, as a kid, I suffered anxiety um, very badly, and you know, various forms of ADHD as I was growing up. So, um, and I suppose we all, you know, they say there are two types of people: people who have had um, lived events um, in a mental health sense, and the other person is the person who is yet to have one. So. I've always I've always been drawn to the disability sector, and um, and it's always a great pleasure, of course. Like I, I I I work in the disability sector from a back office perspective, if you want to put it that way. But it it's always a pleasure working with people who have um, devoted their lives and their careers to um, in a community service sense in terms of working with people with disabilities as mm, well. Mm. And and I'm interested in your in your kind of travelings around with the talent acquisition side of things and being integral there with really getting the right people in the right seat for for organizations. Mm. What are you seeing as some of the skills that workplaces are requiring from people these days? I'll, I'll talk about a few things, but if I could just start um, in that talent acquisition space, um, and I've got to be careful because I probably bang on about this a little bit too much for some people, but I think there are some aspects of um, talent acquisition um, which are lost. I think um, I believe that there is a lot of room for organisations and individuals within organisations to, be- to develop better methodologies methodologies, can't say that word properly, um, and techniques around um, merit-based recruitment. I, 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 it's, it's one of those things. I, I see the future as being um, uh, about the best of the past, merging the best of the past with the best of the future. And I think there's some elements of um, business and particularly human resources which best practice was established some time ago. Um, and we need to revisit that and redevelop that. And and recruitment is, for me, is definitely one of those areas. Mm. There's specifics in that. I suppose I see recruitment as a continuum and, you know, th- therein lies a problem that it's it's recruitment tends to be a, a reactive response to employment. Yeah, needs. it does. It And that always interests me, you know, because if you think about it, recruitment can be one of the most highly strategic actions that you take in your workplace ever at all times because you're bringing new people and, you know, their skills and diversity, et cetera, in. Mm. 
it's an opportunity for you to do it in the most strategic way possible, but often it does seem to be done in a really reactive way. Why do you think that is? It's just um, it's it's just recruitment has become a transaction, as you say, rather than a strategy. I, I think within organisations, because it's deemed as a transaction, it's delegated way too far down the organisation. Uh, with with the greatest respect to those people, um, I in recent times I've been you know uh, talking to senior HR people around Newcastle and the Hunter and the Central Coast, and you hear things. You hear heads of human resources and heads of people in culture say things to you like, um, oh, um, recruitment is not part of my accountability, you know, and there's, I think there can be nothing more HR-related than, than in engaging people to join and, and onboarding people into your organisation. But yeah. it seems to be seen as a, um, a junior role and therefore... Uh, is not reviewed or incorporated around the strategic decisions around the executive tables. And mm. I, I, I've been talking and writing about this for a little while, and I and I wonder I, I wonder um, how it's how people think about it because for me the enlightened times of recruitment and talent acquisition in this organisation uh, in this. Uh, country, I should say. Well, when we came out of our last recession, you know, we haven't had a recession for, for, for nearly 30 years. And if you look at how recruitment evolved and how it developed um, in the, say, the mid-90s as a, as a benchmark, um, workforce planning, which was a continuum, was the cornerstone, development of employee branding um, and taking that to the market, continual processes of recruitment, of, you know, constantly engaging with the community to invite people to explore, you know, the, the experience of working with an organisation. You know, you had information sessions, career expos, assessment centres, you know. I say to people there was a time when by the time you got to the interview table, it had been established that you were suitable for the organisation and you were interested in joining that organisation and uh, you just you just don't see that anymore. And for me, it's because it's it's become um, it's seen as a transaction. Yeah, Whereas, and, and I just as, think as, it, I think it's the ultimate irony because you can't, in my view, you can't get anything more strategic than determining who your future thinker is going to be and who's going to take your organisation forward and yeah. um, and really proactively seeking out individuals that have the capability and capacity and desire to do that on behalf of your organisation. So, yeah. I was, um, I was sharing um, with my colleague, Lisa Stewart, which um, many people may know. Um, I was sharing, hypothetically speaking, using an example the other day. I said, you know, we need to move on from, you know, the, the manager running into our room and talking to, to us about their urgent recruitment needs and, and asking us to make sure ads are posted on Seek before we all go home that day to tell me about the the skills and the resources and the people that you're going to need mm. um, over the next two, year, next mm. two years, which is okay, the workforce planning thing. Whose role is it in the organisation to determine what skills people are going to need? Well, it starts at the top in terms of the business planning. Um, you know, if you take 
if you take the strategic plan for the organisation and its vision for the future, well, that point in the future that's identified is the start, the, the point that you work backwards to, it's, it's kind of like that needs analysis. You know, what skills and capabilities do we have today? What are we going to need in three, four, five years' time? Mm. And how do we recruit and how do we develop and how do we lead to ensure when that point comes that we have the skills and we have the talent and we have the abilities and competencies that we need? So in your understanding of organisations now and what organisations might be like in, let's say, four or five years, Mm. what are the skills that are going to be different that we're going to need more of? Um, Can I... Can I use as a starting point what I believe the work experience for us all is going to be in the future? And I, yeah, and I, and I think, and I think for me, um, it's um, going to be very different. Um, I think for some organisations, I respectfully would suggest that they're going to be dragged kicking and screaming into the twenty first century. Absolutely. I think many already are awesome. with COVID and working from home and those kinds of dynamics. That's already yeah. yeah. But there's a certain irony for me in that, that, you know, I think for years employees have been saying to their organisations, I don't have to sit at my desk nine to five, Monday to Friday. I think people have been saying that for a long time and now organisations are saying, hey, people don't need to sit at their desk nine to five, Monday to Friday. That's right. There's been this awakening and and also a real difference that I see in what I call parent to parent or parent to adult di um I mean child to adult dynamics in the workplace as well. Because it really needing everyone to be there with their bums on seats every day is very much a, a parent to child kind of way of operating. It is very paternalistic. Mm. Yeah, so, um, so what are some of the things that you're seeing that need to be different for us or what does the future look like that's different? The starting point for me is I suppose what's trending or what has been trending up until this point is, is words like um, uh, bring your best self to work or, you know, our commitment to you as an employee is that we will help you develop your best self the best version of yourself when you work for this organisation. I think, you know, as we move into more enlightened times, which is, tends to be how communities behave post-recessions, um, is the invitation to employees will be bring your true self to yeah. work. Be yourself. Um, be empowered to be yourself. Be empowered to have a voice and to make a contribution um, which is, which is a less hierarchical, a less management-focused approach to Definitely. managing people. It's and much I think, more about leadership and much less about management. It kind of dilutes management to the point where you wonder if management's ever going to exist in the future. Well, well you, wonder, you wonder where the concept of self-managing teams has gone for lots of organisations um, you know, really, you know, as as you know, as as a manager, as a you know person who's who has led people or who leads people, there's nothing nicer than not having to manage them and not having to lead them. That they manage really? themselves, Absolutely. and um, yeah, I think I think for me, and this goes back to your point about paternalistic work practices. I think I think I would like work to be a much more adult 
experience for everybody. And that might sound a bit odd, but you know, I, I kind of, I, I kind of feel that a very high percentage of of our workforce is actually disempowered as an adult um, or as a person by entering the workplace. And yeah. I suppose, you know, it's kind of like. Um, so I remember a CEO said to me once, he said, how am I going to manage these people? And I said, well, why don't you ask them? Because they'll have a view um, and it's a really healthy situation if you can have that kind of a conversation with them rather than, you know, locking yourself in a room with a whiteboard and trying to work out how to do it. And for me, that's the future of work, um, um, that it's less about control Mm-hmm. and it's more that. and it's more about choice and choice. Um, yeah you know yeah. um and it's and it's those kind of things and it's it, it it's the dynamics within the workplace i think i think to achieve that though if i could kind of you know go from that from that side to this side because the reality of it is that in order to create let's for want of a better word more enlightened um work environments the frameworks, the structures, the disciplines within the environment have to be there. You know, you've got the, the framework. Um, you know, if you're going to invite people to be themselves and to self-manage and to be empowered and have an opinion and have a voice, um, it's not only got to be a safe environment, a safe and supportive environment, but it's got to be an efficient environment. And I think, again, what is, for me, what has happened over the last 25 or 30 years, which, you know, let's face it, have been very prosperous for most Australians. Um, um, but we've had a continual 25 years of continuous prosperity in Australia, is that um, a lot of lazy practices um, evolve. A lot of the disciplines are a bit fuzzy. And I, I think in order to move forward, we need to look back and rediscover things like mm. productivity. How do we measure productivity? What does productivity look like for our organisation and the various roles within our well, organisation? I, I would argue, is productivity even the goal? Like, because I think I, I sort of get this feeling that the the issue of productivity has been front and centre for a period of time, and mm. even our workplace design and everything else has oriented itself around mm. that one issue of productivity. And I just keep wondering whether we're even asking the right question. Is it is it actually productivity that we're wanting? I, I take your point and I, and, I, and, I, and I don't disagree with your point. I agree with your point. But I think why we have focused too much on productivity and why we have overmanaged people and, um, and is because we don't really know what productivity is anymore. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, we haven't kind of defined... It's it's kind of like, you know, you, you know, with sporting teams, fo- fo- football teams are always a really easy analogy to use. Um, but you know, the the good coach would always say to the players, "Don't look at the scoreboard. You know, just do what you have to do." Um, yeah. You know, the scoreboard will look after itself. You know, productivity will look after itself. Mm-hmm. But 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 you know, what people actually have to do. Um, that's the bit that's for me has been very grey over the last couple of decades. I don't, 
I don't yeah, think. And I think that's that's really where it comes to this question of human skills from what I'm seeing. Like people are talking about things like empathy and kindness and compassion and those kinds of things being front and centre and core to what is going to be required of workplaces moving forward. So I guess that's the bit of the conversation that I really want to be able to go to is in that kind mm-hmm. of genre, what are you yes. saying that you consider to be important in terms of skills? 100%. You're so right. Access and inclusion. Mm-hmm. How do we create work environments um, that provide access and inclusion to at every level on every topic both internally for your workforce and externally for your community, be them the people who will work for your organisation in the future or the people who you serve and the services that you deliver. It's, 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 you're so right, Michelle. Um, you've, you've struck gold there. It's, it, it, it's, to me, it's all about access and, conclu- and, and inclusion. Yeah, and if you even um, think of it really logically, if you are not inclusive in the way that you are welcoming everybody into the workplace and you're connecting with them where they're at and you're not making judgment about who they are or and certainly not focusing on what they can't do but you're focusing on what they can do then you get not just a richer workplace but you actually might get a chance of being way more highly productive than what you ever have imagined before if you practice inclusive practices but people don't seem to put those things together they don't. They don't. And it was really funny. And, and I hate, you know, I hate to keep going back to the mid '90s, but we did in the mid '90s. You know, there was, you know, there was such a global understanding that more diverse and inclusive workplaces created better outcomes, just because of the richness of the participation and the richness of the contribution, um, mm. and how you just automatically break down barriers when you have more diversity in your workplace. It's, um, it was, uh, do you remember the, 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 the on-trend book that everybody read in, in, in the early to mid-90s was a book called Maverick? Do you remember that? No. Do you ever heard of that? I'll have to, I'll, I'll buy you a copy. I'll buy two copies. <laughs> copy. I'll buy two I'll copies for us. Yeah, or audio books, whatever, whatever you prefer. And it was the story I, 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 with the details, I remember it was it was it was a true story, uh, set in an exotic part of the world. I think it was South America or Mexico or something like that. And a young man whose father had passed away or died, and he he um, um, inherited the business, you know, and 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 didn't want to inherit the business, didn't want to manage the business, didn't want to be the owner of the business. So he just he just let the employees run the business, however they saw fit. And it became a very, very successful business. Wow! Yeah, <laughs> because yeah. it was it was just one big self-managing team, and and people, people really, people really embraced that at the time. You know, we were just coming out of a pretty, pretty bad recession, like like what we're experiencing. I now. Um, I noticed that a lot with running my own business. So I've got a team of about ten people, and on a semi-regular basis, I realised that I'm the person that's actually clogging everything up. <laughs> So then I'm like, oh, I have to unclog this whole thing. Oh my god, it's me that's the clog. <laughs> oh, unfortunately, I relate to what you're saying. 
it's it's an awful moment, isn't it? But but I I check myself all the time, and I I pass this advice on to 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 colleagues all the time. You know, people stay awake at night and they fret and and they get stressed, wondering you know how how to manage their business and how to manage their people and how to make things better. And you know, ask the people who have the knowledge. <laughs> yeah, look, I think that that's so true. And and I think the other thing that has a bearing on this conversation is. Culturally, we are um, educated to expect that the answers are outside us and that other people have the answers and we have to go and seek like the guru or the expert or the consultant or whoever to give us the answer, right? We're, We're not taught to go inward and to reflect and to connect with our own intuition and our own decision making and to me that is the biggest productivity gap if you want to call it that that you'll ever have in a workplace is people going externally versus people going internally and I'm just wondering if we had a workplace full of people that were comfortable and had the skills to go internally how different would that look for us yeah yeah and you're so right and it, it 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 all it all comes back to leadership and management or absence thereof, doesn't it? You know, it's all. Mm. I think I think the tendency is always to overmanage and overlead, and I think it's fair to say this is, you know, it's fair to say. Um, um, sorry, I just I just lost 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 your image there, but I'll keep talking. Um, what I was going to say, it's no different now. I don't see it any different now than when I started work in 1975 in one aspect in that the people who tend to be promoted to managers and leaders are the people who either just want it so badly <laughs> or, you know, you know the, the, the best accounts clerk becomes the accountant, you know, the best um, salesperson becomes the sales manager, um, and you know, I, I just—I've always thought this, Michelle. I've always thought this. I think when it comes to leadership and management development within organisations, we've got to do better than that. Yeah, I, I see. I—it's I, I, I just a completely, completely. They're such dramatically different skill sets. And where I saw that a lot in my early career was in healthcare mm. and with nurses. And you'd get the most amazing nurses who are caring and they're loving and they're incredible nurses. And they would get promoted and become the nursing unit managers. Suddenly they're dealing with conflict, they're dealing with rosters, they're dealing with all the stuff that they don't even like dealing with anyway. (laughs) And it requires another whole different skill set. And no one is there to catch that gap. No one's there to bridge the gap to say, we get this is going to be tricky and difficult, so we're going to support you through it in this way. Yeah. And, again, using the the low-hanging fruit of a sporting analogy, um, the captain of the team is very rarely the star player. Yeah, because yep. the great. coach and the the coach and the players are looking for a different skill set. They're not looking for the fastest player or the per- person with the best ball handling skills or the best tackling skills. They're looking for the person who can, you know. I always love saying one plus one equals three. They can, you know, the great the the the, the total is greater than the sum of the parts that mm. you can, you know. You know, good. We all know that good leadership and good management can can achieve extraordinary things. Um, or people being able to work together and learn from each other and support each other. You know, there's there's no telling what people can achieve. And um, 
you know, that's, you know, that's not the traditional model of hierarchy and business. No, it's is not. It? And I think, you know, if I think about um, new models of leadership, the thing that strikes me all the time is a conversation about around vulnerability because I think one of the biggest, most important conversations that a leader can have is around their own vulnerability and opening up and saying, I'm great at this, but I really suck at that. And just being mm. really down to earth and real. And you will be aware of the work of Brene Brown and what she's done in around the research of vulnerability and shame. And I think yes. she's been able to beautifully bring forward this conversation on a platform about vulnerability that I think it links to many things, but it links to what you're saying earlier about diversity and inclusion, because the more vulnerable a leader is, the more adept and the more comfortable they're going to feel with conducting themselves in an inclusive manner. Yes. Yes. And I, I know, I know just in terms of my own life's journey as a person that um, um, I enjoy the work experience and, and working much more now that I'm comfortable to 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 be vulnerable and to share, you know, the bits about myself that are broken. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's just a it's just a liberating thing. And the one thing that I do notice, you know, when I'm when I'm in leadership and management roles, and I bring, I would say authenticity, but I, I don't mean that sounds a bit self congratulatory. I don't mean it that way. But when I bring my true self, you know, to my work now, I. I can see how it has a positive impact on people mm-hmm. and I can see how it does incline people to share their true selves. Yeah, and it gives them that, permission, doesn't it, to be themselves? It is. And, and I think, you know, for me personally, speaking personally, I think, you know, any of us who suggest that we're perfect or not broken in some way, uh, you know, we're having a lend of ourselves. And I think, you know, if you can kind of remove all of that nonsense you know, from a team environment or a work environment, it's 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 just unleashes potential, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it definitely does. And look, I think that's such a great way to look at it. I know here at Being More Human, we're constantly te- um, talking about tapping into people's potential, and but when mm. we say that, we're talking about our own potential as well as other people's potential. Mm. Yes. Um, maybe if you could just wrap up with the last question that I'll ask you for today, and that is. If you were able to give some words of advice or wisdom or insight to people in workplaces uh, moving forward, what would that be? Oh, thank you. That's that's a great question. Um, make sure you're in the right workplace. Make sure you're doing the right work. Make sure where you are and what you're doing and who you're doing it with aligns with 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 your 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 destiny. Um, you know your purpose. Um, the reason you're here, what you want to do, what you want to contribute, um, um, how you want to support your families, how you want to develop as a person, that no matter what you're doing, where you're doing it or who you're doing it with, that it, it aligns it, it to your path, your own particular path to the top of the mountain in life. Um, mm. Because I do sense that a lot of people, and I know, you know, that might sound a bit, um, what's the word, um, pie in the sky. But what I do find is that if um, oh, my phone telling me to do something there, if um, 
if you're in a job that you're not, not enjoying, if you feel as though you have to be there, um, it's 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 not going to create an environment where you share your real self, um, and it's not going to bring the best out in you. When 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 I manage people, and and, and and you notice that people have different working experiences. When 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 you ask them questions like this, when I start managing people or working with people, the one first question I always ask them when you get sort of in that environment is, how can I help you get to where you want to be? And I don't mean that in this organisation. I don't mean that in your career. I mean it in terms of your life. And my advice to anybody is wherever possible, you know, and economic times don't always allow us, afford us this liberty, but wherever possible, be in a place doing the do with people that helps you get to where you want to be in life. Yeah, I think that that's uh, such a sage piece of advice because when you see people who are so clearly not, it's not good for them, it's not good for the organisation and it's certainly not good for their personal well-being. So that's such great advice to really, what I would, what I would say that you're saying is to be in alignment and behave mm-hmm. and live in alignment. Michelle, I know, I know you're a person who knows this and, and embraces this, but have fun in your work wherever possible. Enjoy it. Enjoy the company of the people that you're with. Enjoy the work that you're doing and have fun. It won't always be fun and you'll have your good days and your bad days. But work can be a fun place. And, Absolutely. Um, and when, when, it's, when it's rolling well, it is fun. It is. That's right. And that's exactly how it should be. Work should be fun. And I think we're going to wrap it up there. Uh, a massive thank you to you, Bill, for taking your time and energy and sharing it with us today here at the Humans at Work podcast. Can't wait for everyone to listen to this one. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Michelle.